This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. Your faithful American patriot, Muslim who the most difficult controversial issues of the day as we try to breach that divide between the land of Islam, the land of political Islam, and the land of the West, freedom and liberty. We breach those chasms that so few are willing to traverse. And week to week, I bring you those front lines, those issues of the day, and where do the reformist Muslims land? Where are the Islamists, and how can you tell the difference between those who are our foes and those who are our allies? Well, I know we had a little bit of debate fatigue last week, and uh, I talked to you about the debate we should have been having, the debate between our national interests as Americans and promoting our national values abroad and how do we balance what should we balance and where do we balance it abroad domestically national security foreign policy country to country and what should be that doctrine well this week brought us uh, this week brings us uh, and brought us another debate the proverbial kitty table if you will Uh, yes in the primaries we thought that's where the not the top 10 uh, candidates and this time the singular VP debate between Senator Tim Kaine on the Democratic side and Republican Governor Mike Pence was probably uh, not, you know, the uh, while the ratings obviously were much less than the uh, Trump-Clinton car accident uh, that we witnessed, uh, but uh, it does seem that uh, they uh, addressed some of the more central issues and actually at least attempted to answer some of the questions more directly. And I I did want to dive into a little bit of this because I think that the as much as the 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 noise and the personality attacks persisted uh, at the end of the day, these two candidates seem to have a little bit more of a substantive disagreement, especially with Governor Pence uh, more directly addressing some of the questions, uh, made it clear that uh, um, if anything made the problems at the top of the tickets on both sides much, much more stark. And 
you know, again, we focus here on Islamic reform, domestic security, national security globally, and foreign policy. So I, I do want to look at some of those comments. I mean, when the debate opened on that issue and whether we were safer eight years later, Senator Tim Kaine went right to the killing of bin Laden. I mean, you know you have a pathetic platform on the left when you go to the actions of patriotic, valiant Navy SEAL Team 6. And he wanted to credit Secretary Clinton for that. He wanted to credit that as shifting and making us safer when, in fact, any real counterterrorism expert today barely talks about or even thinks about bin Laden, let alone al-Qaeda, because the global scourge of radical Islamism has spread not only as a result of the Syrian conflict, but our evacuation of Iraq and ISIS, and Cain never mentioned ISIS. Governor Pence certainly did. Governor Pence certainly reminded us about Paris and Belgium and reminded us about Orlando. And the moderator then asked a good question about what should be done in Syria, what has allowed the spread of ISIS. And, you know, I think the most telling part of the debate was when I started to wonder, when's the debate between Trump and Pence happening? Because when asked a number of questions, not only about Syria policy, but about Russia, Pence was a little clearer about Vladimir Putin being small, bullying, that the answer to an aggressive Russia in Syria and through the region is strength. And he actually talked about safe zones. Now, he didn't get into the details, but anyone who knows about what's happening in Syria and the many of us who've been calling for safe zones through Syria, which would have prevented the mass emigration and migration into Europe, that had there been no fly zones and safe zones in northeast, northwestern, northern Syria, the Turkish border or elsewhere, that that would have required air support that that should have been done before September 30, 2015, when Russia actually started engaging direct military engagement. And now we know, as was laid out in this debate by the questioner, now Kane, both Kane and Pence ignored the reality on the ground. Uh, Pence did say and talk about uh, sympathy and compassion for the hundreds of thousands of women and children that have been killed on the ground. Now, he didn't lay that blame directly at Russia, but the questioner said that Russia was killing civilians and he did not disagree, so I'll take that as an affirmative. But the reality is that the genocidal actions of Assad's regime, his military, and now Russia, the deployment of missiles just this week by Russia into Syria to prevent as anti-aircraft, which would actually be used against any American flights or sorties in the region, shows you that Russia really sees nothing to fear. And all the United States could do this week was to withdraw 
from the negotiation table because all President Obama, Secretary Kerry, and Secretary Clinton know how to do is words. Their doctrine should be called the harsh words doctrine because that's really what they, that's all they do. And barbaric dictators like Vladimir Putin and Bashar Assad don't care about words. They control their media. They are the strong horse. Just like Putin rides his horse bare-chested. To him, the golfing Barack Obama is nothing to fear. The subservient Secretary Kerry might take his cards and leave the card table, but he'll be back. There's no military to fear anymore. America is but a paper tiger. And I think in the debate this week we saw with Vice President, the Vice President's ticket between Senator Kane and Governor Pence that the debate was between one side that talked about American strength, that actually seemed contrary to Mr. Trump. Governor Pence was pretty clear on the fact that uh, Russia is not a good actor, that Putin does not use any form of human rights concerns when fighting a war. But yet the details remained unclear. Tim Kaine was living in some fantasy land. It's almost as if he was talking about national security on Mars, where all he could talk about was bin Laden, and that somehow the incidence of terror has decreased. He couldn't even get himself to mention Orlando, even when asked about it, to mention San Bernardino. Paris and Belgium and Boston. The attacks all over Europe and Canada and the United States as a result of the proliferating cancer of radical Islamism, the hundreds upon hundreds of terror arrests, the thousands of Americans that have and Westerners that have gone to fight in the war in Syria and some have come back to subvert our travel and visa and passport system to go back and forth and pretend to be immigrants and migrants and then commit acts of terror as we saw in Paris and Belgium. So, are we safer eight years later? My God, the answer is no. And Tim Kaine, by believing that we are, proved that not either. It is beyond being able to claim that he's ignorant. He was just blatantly dishonest. Blatantly dishonest. And I think it also proved Governor Pence was honest about these things. Now, unfortunately, he had to, when confronted with a lot of the verbiage that truly it has been bizarre and offensive from Mr. Trump, be it about military, be it about other aspects of the campaign that I'm not going to waste our time to go through. At the end of the day, Governor Pence did articulate values that are consistent with conservatism. Did he articulate a doctrine across the Middle East? No, I still remain disappointed that we've not been able to hear candidates articulate the advancement and advocacy of freedom and democracy across the Middle East. 
And now oh, I know, I know, we've talked about this before here. It's not uh, something that's going to happen over months or even years. But security will not come any other way. Our American interests, as I discussed with you last week, are best served by promoting our values because then we be, we begin to build that coalition on the ground from the bottom up and also from the top down of those who share our values and ultimately that will facilitate regime change. We saw this week, I don't know if any of you know, uh, uh, Max Blumenthal, but the son of Sidney Blumenthal, but Max Blumenthal has turned out to be since 9-11 to be a, a just a notoriously grotesque vessel and promoter of dictatorships, Islamic regimes, Islamist movements, and anti-American and conspiracy sentiments. And whenever CARE and other Islamist groups want to unleash a pit bull to attack reformers, to attack those who support America, support Israel, support freedom and democracy, Max takes it upon himself to attack us. Max had a piece this week in which he tried to lay waste to the Syria campaign and claimed that they were all about regime change and that somehow that made them evil about the Syria lobby, when in fact it was his piece that seemed to advocate for Russia seem to advocate for Assad and its war crimes. Not one mention was made of the war crimes, and yet he claimed that the humanitarian relief, the White Helmets, that Netflix, and I'd ask you, take a look at the documentary. It's well done. I wish they had shown more women activists. It seemed to be heavy on the young men activists, but I still think that a lot of good work was highlighted and the children and others that are saved with the white helmets, that, that documentary that Netflix did. But Max seemed to find them as being the the devil, when in fact these are the angels of of Syria today and what they're doing, not about arms, but about saving lives. And again, another apologetic for Russia. So the vice presidential debate was... I think, just amazing in the fact that how harsh a tone Governor Pence took against Russia. How harsh a tone Governor Pence took in basically advocating for some use of force against Russia in order to push them back from their desire to bring back Soviet activities and push into Ukraine. Syria and elsewhere. He also then brought in the Iran deal, and obviously that is related to this entire triangle, be it between Russia, Syria, and Iran. No, we are not safer eight years later. No, there has been little that could have been done. There's been many opportunities missed, and I think the vice presidential debate at least began to clarify that, and we got some clarity about the fact that Russia does not share our values. So, yeah, the kitty table, actually. You know, sometimes you go over to the kitty table and they make, uh, at least one of the kids on the table seems to make a little more sense than any of the adults did at the other dinner table, and that seems to be what uh, happened this week. But gosh, you know, 
would Senator Kane just shut up? He kept interrupting the governor, and it really made him look small, made him look childish, sort of like that mealy-mouthed kid that sits in the back and just irritates the heck out of everyone, and nobody knows what he's saying other than that he sounds like he's on Mars. This is Udi Jasser. We'll be right back with Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment this week on Reform This. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're new, I hope you find some hope some reassurance that there are American Muslim voices out there, at least this voice of reform, of dedicated responsibility that we have a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution, and that is reforms against the Islamic State consciousness, the concept, the identity of Islamic political movements. We're talking this week about another debate, the only vice presidential debate, And Governor Mike Pence not only held his own, but seemed to finally represent a candidate that we haven't heard since the primaries that actually seemed to articulate clearly what America should stand for domestically and abroad and what conservatism may embody. It's interesting, though, just also this week, days before he went on the stage the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago had affirmed a uh, lower court ruling that uh, Governor Pence, uh, seeking to bar state agencies from helping the resettlement of Syrian refugees, had discriminated against the refugees based on national origin. Now, it's interesting that 25 U.S. governors had also joined Pence in that suit. And this had come after the November attack in Paris that had killed 130. Now, obviously, there's no doubt that we are vulnerable. We're beyond vulnerable. There is no ideological vetting. The vetting that we do, yes, it does take a long time because they're trying to do background checks and other interview processes, but that's all simply criminal checks, checks for violence, no checks on ideological organizations, no checks on Islamist movements. This is the problem. Now the courts 
told Governor Pence and the other 25 Republican governors, all three appellate panel members were Republican appointees. And one actually included Judge Diane Sykes, who uh, Mr. Trump said would nominate to the court, Supreme Court if he wins in November 8th. Now, U.S. Homeland Security did admit, as Pence reminds us, that there are some security gaps in the screening of Syrian refugees. And there are potential, as the State Department has said, that they wouldn't even debate the fact that there's a potential for ISIS terrorists to try to insert themselves. Now, I'll remind you, studies have shown that the refugees have a bizarrely high, almost 20% sympathy for what ISIS is doing, which scares me. But it's not that surprising because of the radicalization of the Syrian population that's being pummeled by chemical weapons and has really lost everything they've had and exactly what Assad's plan was. But that doesn't mean that America should accept these in a suicidal way. That doesn't mean that it's a right to come to the United States. But the issue, I think, with this ruling is the fact that the vetting, the privilege to come to the United States is about coming here. But once they are here and they are accepted by our federal government and then protected by our federal constitution, then states cannot pick and choose which nation state they would accept because that would be a slippery slope. Now, I'm not saying we take away state rights, but the discrimination on national origin, religion, and other aspects that are protected by the First Amendment in our Constitution cannot become carved out by states, and conservative judges just ruled in that favor. So if the federal government decides to bar people from Iran, or as Carter did, or to bar people from Syria, as we may want to do, and pausing the button of immigration, that would be smart. That's not against the Constitution. Foreigners do not have the rights to our Constitution. However, once they're here and the federal government accepts them, then we cannot have states picking and choosing which nations of origin they are going to accept. So even though these aren't citizens, they may not even be permanent residents, they still have to be protected by the law of the land, which is the Constitution. So what do we do? What does a state do? And I, I would have loved to have seen the challenge from these governors not be about nation of origin, because that includes anti-Islamist Syrians, it includes secular Syrians, it includes Christians, Yazidis, and the Islamists, if you bar them all. But why not just bar Islamists? Why not have state homeland security apparatuses then do the screening that should have been done by the federal government? And why is that illegal? Let's say we start accepting groups that are maybe non-militant but have clearly anti-American ideologies to them, what's to force Indiana, Arizona, New York, any state from accepting them? And I don't think there's a constitutional right to... be in the United States if you harbor anti-American, anti-secular ideas. 
but how do you do that? What's the vetting that we should do? And I think that would have been a greater test, which is if they set up a, if Indiana had set up a, a process of vetting against Islamist ideologies, seeing that they had, if these refugees had belonged to the Muslim Brotherhood, had belonged to the Taliban, had belonged to various Islamist movement, Khomeinism, if they had belonged, forget the Islamist grassroots movements, what about Assadists? What about those that were part of the Syrian military? Unless they defected and rejected those ideas, I think those are also as dangerous organizations, and individuals rather. So it's too bad the states didn't figure that out because the government should, our federal government should have been vetting for those ide- against those ideas. We should have a vetting process. And you may recall a few episodes ago, I did a mock interview again with Abdul. How do you interview Abdul and figure out that he adheres to Sharia, he adheres to the Islamic State identity and concept? There is a way to do that. Intelligence officers have been doing it for a long time, figuring out sort of in a totality of a 45-minute interview how you can tell whether somebody adheres to our ideas in this country. So that should be what, you know, I believe what should have been done, and I think Mr. Pence, Governor Pence, is right in expressing the alarm and certainly the left has had us on this path towards national fratricide where we just sort of let people in regardless of whether they believe in our values, believe in our country, that there is no obligation for us to allow those people in. And listen, I have a lot of reason for bias for the refugees. They're not only suffering in a humanitarian way, but uh, they are... experiencing a genocide that time will show. There will be museums in 2040, 2050 that will talk about the Syrian genocide of 2011 to 2018, 19, 25. I don't know how long this war will go on, but eventually there will be millions likely dead. Right now we're over a half a million and there's 10 million displaced. But eventually the Syrian military will wither away and from the rubble will be built a new people. Russia will not be in the equation. They can continue to drop tons of bombs and they might be able to quell the revolution for a few years, but eventually it will continue. There is no political solution in Syria. There is no words solution, Mr. Obama. Senator Kane, the weakness doesn't work. And Governor Pence is right. Strength is the only answer. I hope Mr. Trump was listening to his vice presidential running mate as he seemed to know how to answer some of those questions about Russia and Syria a little better he talked about safe zones he talked about strength he talked about preventing the small bully of Putin and I think ultimately the answer will be about smart humanitarianism no we don't need to accept all the refugees but I do believe we should not shut the door completely We pause them for a while until we vet against ideologies, and then we open the door to those who are seeking political asylum from the Islamists and from the Assadists and from the Russian autocrats and barbarians and those who are on the sides of Russia, Iran, Assad, ISIS, Muslim Brotherhood, 
stay over there, go to countries that share your values if you don't want to leave if you want to leave Syria, but don't come here. Don't come to the west of the line of freedom if you don't believe in our ideas, because otherwise you are coming here to be insurgents. And that's not what the privilege of coming to America is all about. At least that's not the privilege that my parents sought. They sought the privilege of believing and participating in a free society to defend it, to raise kids that wanted to join the military, that wanted to defend this country and not work against it. There's a lot of talk right now about this identity of being a Muslim, this stronger identity. Time magazine invited a columnist to write about it. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about that and the DOD's discussion from the chairman of Joint Chiefs down about what they should do with the concept of Salafi jihadism. So when we come back, we'll talk Salafi jihadism and the DOD and Muslim identity. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're new, hopefully you'll hear a voice that you'll want to hear more of that brings you hope. There there are some solutions within the Muslim community that uh, recognize the need to reform, the need to address our problems within. You know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to bring your attention to that's been happening that thanks to the Daily Caller and uh, the Clarion Project, they reported this week about, yes, an internal struggle. Believe it or not, it's not all just political correctness happening in our U.S. government. There are real debates happening now it's behind the scenes, it's not debates happening in public, unfortunately, but at least we know there is a internal struggle inside the Joint Chiefs of Staff, inside the Pentagon, about what to do with this Salafi jihadi threat. So far, they don't want to call it that, so far, the Muslim Brotherhood whispering and openly determining the lexicon, both from the White House and then trickling down into every branch of the executive branch, including the military and the cabinet and the Pentagon's cleansing of any materials that educated our officers on the front lines about the ideological precursors of militant Islamism were purged. But now there's a report out revealing that staffers from the Special Operations Command wanted to include simply one section 
one section on Salafi jihadism in the next edition of National Military Strategy. And this National Military Strategy is put out by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, our most senior military officer, and uh, it was important that some felt that it include a section on the strain of Salafi jihadism, which is that Salafism, that fundamentalist strain, Salaf in Arabic means friends of the Prophet. Salaf means trying to return everything to the way it was exactly in the 7th century at the time of the Prophet. Jihad is the military struggle to achieve victory, domination, victory over the enemies of the Islamic State or of Islam. So Salafi jihadism is the fundamentalist militant strain that tries to impose through victory of war the Sharia state. It's a strain most notably of Wahhabism but much more dominant throughout Salafi, I'm sorry, through Sunni Islam. Now, obviously Shia Islam through Khomeinism has its own jihadism and its own fundamentalism but the Salafiyin are known to be the friends of the Prophet of the Sunni tradition and thus Salafi jihadism is Sunni. Now Joe John, now General uh, Joseph Dunsford, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was compiling his strategy, and the branch of his military charged with uh, hunting down and killing terrorists, the Special Operations Commander SOCOM, wanted to put a chapter, a section on Salafi jihadism. And this is not only shared of ideology of ISIS, but it's also ideology of Al-Qaeda, Jamaat Islamiyya, Muslim Brotherhood, and others. Now, the the response is that most of the Salafi jihadis, that jihad can be a personal struggle, that Salafism is simply wearing a beard, uh, praying in a meticulous kind of uh, orthodox way, uh, adhering to halal diet that many of us Muslims do. And certainly there are Salafi characteristics to the way I conduct my own life. So their, their response is that we cannot demonize all Salafi jihadis, but the, the bottom line is that the SOCOM experts understand that the underbelly of militant Islamism Militant Salafi jihadism is non-violent, global Salafi jihadism, and that's why the battleground that we're fighting is global. It's because Salafi jihadism from Pakistan to India to Afghanistan to Iraq to Iran and Syria and Egypt and across the world is common. It is an attempt to return everything militarily, culturally, economically, socially, to the Sharia interpretation of the time of the, what they feel was the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Now us reformers, if you talk to Muslims at the Muslim Reform Movement, I think one of the things that you'll find that we share is that we believe that if the Prophet were alive today, he'd reject Salafi jihadism, he'd reject the Islamic State concept because America, the West, has proven that the better, most modern, the most human and humane state that recognizes equal rights and values under God is the secular state and the rejection of the theological or theocratic state. But that's a debate we'll carry on later. And I think it tells us a lot 
that source is close, not only to SOCOM, but to the Joint Chiefs, that they're having this debate that Dunsford's staff actually ended up winning the debate and they rejected including it. And I think one of the primary players who also came from the White House and was one of the architects of Obama's national counter-extremism policy, and again, not counter-Salafism, but counter-extremism, was Quentin Witterowitz. And uh, he had actually charted in maps. This is a guy who can't claim ignorance. This is a guy who, when you look at his work before going to the White House, had charted the relationships in the Salafi jihadist groups and other sects of Islam, though he, as the Clarion Project points out, he did not use that term, in a 2005 paper called The Genealogy of Radical Islam. And he notes that the global jihadi movement are not theological outliers, that they are a broader community of Islamists known as Salafis. But the Quentin Rhetoritzes of the world don't want to offend the Salafis. A great example in, in the United States is Yasser Qadi, the head of Al-Maghrib Institute, a constant antagonist of my work, an apologist for Salafism who has a large youth following that is, I believe, one of the primary radicalizers in the West. Now, he rejects Al-Qaeda. He claims to be their enemy. He's listed on an ISIS kill list, as many also reformers are. But he's not a friend of the United States. This is a radicalizer. This is a person who believes in the Salafi Sharia state and only follows American laws because he's a minority. He believes in the insurgency of Salafi jihadism, and he may call it evangelism as a Muslim reformer, as an Islamist. He may even reject the term Islamist, but if you read Yasser Qadi's work, he's clearly the underbelly of militant Islam, even though he may condemn their means and their tactics, the end people like Yasser Qadi believe in. And these are the people that the Wataruitzes of the world did not want to alienate. And this is what unfortunately and sadly ends up getting us, even though I think what we can be reassured is that this debate actually happened. And thank God for the reporters uh, at Clarion Project and Daily Caller that found the sources that revealed that they were talking about the division of the world into jahiliya or ignorance and islam the division of the world by the muslim brotherhood and the ideologues of the founder of the muslim brotherhood philosophically sayyid qutb and his salafism and his desire to see victory over what he called the evil of secularism so understanding this underbelly this ideology that feeds militant Salafi jihadism is important to understand that nonviolent Salafi jihadism is its root. The story this week was that they had this debate. For the love of God, when are we going to have a story that says that the Department of Defense today released a report on the insurgency threat of Salafi jihadism? The Department of Defense today released its experts to discuss 
the working relationships domestically and globally with anti-Salafi jihadi Muslim groups that will lead the effort to marginalize Salafi jihadi groups domestically and abroad. The Department of Defense today released a report that in Syria, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, they will work with reformers, with liberal Muslims who are anti-Salafi jihadi. Now, those are all fictitious reports that I just made up, but that's when you know we're going to be making progress. Now, the pushback from the Saudi regime will be huge as their Salafi judges reek and writhe in stress. The pushback will be huge from even the LCCs of the world who claim to be reformers, but yet are Salafi and Islamist apologists, because they won't use those terms. And they talk about reforming against violence. The pushback will be huge from the Khomeinists of Iran who love jihadism. And yes, Foreign Minister Zarif, as I talked to you last week, may write a piece in the New York Times about the evil of Wahhabism and the need to eradicate Wahhabism from the world. But Khomeinism is the other Shia side of that exact same Sunni militant jihadist coin. So don't be fooled by Khomeinists who tell you they're working with you against Salafi jihadism. Jafari jihadism, which is the Shia school of thought, or Khomeinism, is just as potent, just as militant, just as supremacist in its idea of theocracy and establishing the Islamic theocratic state as Salafi jihadism. We need to have more experts on Salafi jihadism. We need to have public conversations in our universities, in our media, on CBS, ABC, and CNN, and Fox, about Salafi jihadism. The time is over for apologetics. The time is now for candidates and others and our DOD to be held accountable for these ideas as being precursors. Because the apologists, when they prevent them from doing it, then they can claim in their testimony to Congress that, oh, we can't monitor these people. It's against the CVE narrative, the countering violent extremism narrative. That needs to end. I don't know what's going to end it, but I can tell you Muslim reformers want it to end because we want to reclaim our faith. We want to take back Islam. This is Zudi Jasser. When we come back, we'll spend our last segment talking about Muslim identity and what to do with a stronger Muslim identity. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? This is Zudi Jasser, and I'll be right back on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. So last night on the debate, who won? Uh, I, you know, I really had a difficult time analyzing it for some reason. Usually, partially I'm sick, so maybe I'm just like in, cl- I feel like I'm in clouds right now. Like my whole brain is cloudy. Mm. It's been like I that for that the last couple days. No, no, it's not drug induced. Oh. Um, so uh, this one, I just, I, I just don't, I, I don't feel right. So it could be that. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're new, 
I hope and pray that you find hope here and that you find that voice of reform, of realism, pragmatism, and patriotism from an American Muslim who loves his country and loves his faith and can present for you nuggets of solutions that you can take locally to your neighbors, to your societies, your communities, and say, this is how we solve the problem. This is the step forward in what we need to do. Last, I want to leave you and talk about a piece, another nauseating apologetic that Time Magazine published. And you know, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, people tell me, why do you read that stuff? Just don't read it. Just don't read it. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Well, you know, these magazines have significant followings and they are setting the quote-unquote narrative. And I think in discussing and looking at them, all of you can understand what we're up against. When people say, where are the voices of moderate Islam? If you ignore what's said in the main or lamestream media, you will not understand what's radicalizing Muslims. You will not understand why our policy is so feckless. You will not understand why 15 years after 9-11 we've not made any progress. So Time Magazine publishes, as you know, I think in one of my first podcasts I talked about how disgusting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's discussion of dismissal of the problems and how his apologetics are harmful. Well, the latest writer now in Time Magazine is a gentleman by the name of Rashid. And on uh, September 28th, 2016, Qasim Rashid published a op-ed called A Strong Muslim Identity is the Best Defense Against Extremism. Now, if you read this piece, and just to give you a little background on who Qasim is, he comes from the Ahmadiyya community, which to their credit is a reformist community that's persecuted in almost every Muslim country because of their beliefs. So you'd think that uh, they would abandon some of the Islamist ideas, but unfortunately, often as we see their spokespeople in the name of protecting and believing and loving their faith end up promoting Islamist ideas. And a lot of what he discusses in this piece he relates to a Muslim identity. But I would tell you it's not about identity, it's about belief, it's about faith, it's about morals and ethics and values. Yes, strong Muslim morals, just as Christian, Jewish, and other faith-based beliefs and accountability to God are the best defense against extremism. And I know many Muslims, especially family and others in Syria, in which their belief in God their strong Islamic belief has protected them from radicalization. There's no doubt. But the deep cancer in the piece that Qasim wrote that is so pathognomonic, as we say in medicine, or correlated to the pathology of our communities is the fact that he mixes identity and strengthening the community and identity as being the primary tool of identification of individual strength against extremism, when in fact, the reason our American Islamic Forum for Democracy is based on a mission to separate mosque and state 
is that the best thing that promotes redefinition of ummah, ummah means nation, but it also, more importantly in Islam, means faith community. But until we abandon the meaning of nation, or we say our new ummah is America, our new ummah is the world community of all faiths or no faith equally, our new ummah are those that believe in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But Qasim doesn't go there. Time magazine doesn't want him to go there. Here's a guy who is the director of civil rights and policy for Karama, a Muslim lawyers for human rights group. Does a lot of good work about women's rights, but yet seems to here toe the line and the trope of Muslim Islamist identity. Won't even use that term. Won't even talk about Salafi jihadism. And the avoidance of these terms, they may do it in order to protect it. But basically he then endorses what he believes is true Islam. Now this is a movement to the Ahmadiyya, but I would tell them that God bless them and what their beliefs are for true Islam, but are there people who disagree with them? For example, who may disagree with them that their holiness or the Khalifa of Islam is their blessed Khalifa. What if we do not believe that? Do we not follow then true Islam? As a Sunni Muslim, I don't believe in their caliph. I would die for their right to believe that and follow that. I would die for their right to identify as Muslims or non-Muslims and all have equal religious freedom. But when they use terms like true Islam, as he describes, that's problematic. I've tried to have this debate with folks in the Ahmadiyya community, their spokespeople, and they are often unable to, and that's unfortunate. They need, all of us in the Muslim community, need to use terms like Islamism and understand what Harikat Islamiyin or Islamic movements are. They are about identity. So, Mr. Rashid, as important as it is for us to believe in God and be strong Muslims morally and ethically, that Muslim identity as a community, as one as Muslim army per se, that's the root cause of the cancer. Until we come together as a faith community and say that the time for any Muslim army identity, the time for a Muslim identity as nation-state, as ummah, is done, until we end that, you're going to be radicalizing. So even though you try to unite Muslims and say that, well, extremism is bad, it's not only extremism and violence, it is their ends that we need to defeat. So not only how they get there, but where are they going? If they are going to a place that's about a caliphate, if they are going to a place that's about Islamic law or Dar al-Islam, the land of Islam, and the rest of the world is Dar al-Harb or land of war, or even as the so-called modernist reformists call it Dar al-Aqd or the land of contract, where they come to terms with the majority. No, the only way to reform and truly defeating ISIS and all militancy is not just against extremism and their means, but against the ends, the Islamic State's any Islamic state, any Muslim army. We form armies to defend our universal rights. I fought in the U.S. Navy next to Mormons, Christians, uh, uh, Protestants, Baptists, Jews, 
atheists, Sikhs, Hindus of all faith in one uniform. We had one American identity. My Muslim beliefs guided my morals and what I believed God was judging me for, but I did not talk about both a Muslim identity and an American identity. We have one national identity. And until we Muslims can begin to separate out what that national identity is and that it cannot conflict or in any way overlap with the American identity, yes, every moment of my day is guided by my faith. Every moment of my day is guided by what I believe God would want me to do with my patience, my my philanthropy, my work, my activism with my family. That's Islamic. But I reject Islamism. I reject the fact that the Islamic way of life goes beyond into community activism and community organization. That needs to end. But instead, no, Rashid didn't talk about that. Time magazine gave him a podium to talk about how our Muslim identity is affected by the Islamophobia industry. He opens by indicting how reforming Islam under the guise of combating extremism has become financially lucrative and cites a study that quotes $57 million, which is an exaggerated amplification of somehow saying that is one movement when in fact it's very disparate, often antagonistic, often marginal groups that are in no way working together as opposed to the George Soros-funded Center for American Progress, countering fear literature that is unilaterally funded mostly from Soros and singularly funded. And the studies that IPT and others have done on that. This is where the problem is, is that so-called spokespeople for our community end up pushing more and more the buttons of unification, of identification as one ummah, as the need to unify against the enemies of Islam that hate us because we ask questions, that this ends up radicalizing us. And I would tell you that this moderate, this individual who, other than this column, could certainly make a, a, a profound case as being a persecuted minority as a reformer. But yet when it comes to political Islam, he again proves in Time magazine that he's part of the problem. We need to own up to our disease, our cancer of theocracy. We need to own up to our disease, our cancer of unifying under the banner of Islam as a nation state, as a movement, as a political movement, and as a political identity. We need to reject every political identity that results in movements that are insurgencies in the West and in the Middle East become movements to topple regimes in order to promote new supremacist ideas. No, the dictators do need to go, but the and I hope and pray they're replaced by secular liberal democracies over the next generation or two that respect universal human rights. And I hope this apologetics are done being published in lamestream media and that they start publishing the works of reformists. We have a lot of work to do, but please... Don't ignore the mainstream media, but tell them, demand that they publish other ideas and not just reformist apologia, but rather real 
reformists that take on the toughest questions, that demand the most from our community from a position of tough love, that it's time to take Islam through what the West went through in the American Revolution and the rejection of theocracy. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your contacts, tell your experts and those who want to learn about my podcast about Reform This, where we talk weekly about the the topics of the day from the mindset of just one, your humble American Muslim correspondent, your American Muslim patriot, who believes that if we're going to have a legacy, it needs to be one of an American, of a Western Islam that has reformed and rejected in every way possible theocracy and political Islam and the underbelly of the Sharia state. This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you for joining me on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.